The Apostles' Creed gets its name um, not because it was produced by the Apostles, the the original 12 whom Jesus selected to uh, lead the church, but because it contains a summary of the Apostles' teachings. It dates back, we think, to the early 2nd century, so, you know, 120 to 150 A.D., Um, and it was originally recited by new converts to Christianity right before their baptism and their entry into the church. And we get the word creed simply from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And the creed, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Near the end of the creed, it says, I believe in, in the Holy Catholic Church. We've talked about that before, that it's, it's not there designating a particular branch of the church, namely the Roman Catholic Church under the Bishop of Rome, a.k.a. the Pope. But Catholic is just a word that simply means universal. I believe in the universal church, that is Christians from every place and every time, every tongue, every nation. Um, okay, we're, we're clear with that. H- have you ever wondered, why is it necessary to say, I believe in the church? You know, I, I get that it takes faith to, to believe in God. You know, there's a lot of people out there who, who say, who, you know, who call themselves atheists, and they, they don't think there is a God. It takes faith to believe in God. It takes faith to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, uh, as the Messiah. Um, but, but does it take faith to believe in the church? And that's a trick question, isn't it? Because the answer is absolutely it takes faith to believe in the church. In fact, I mean, in the creed, you might, you might go so far as to say, Believing in the church, that's the hardest thing to believe in, isn't it? You know, just given, just given how inconsistent the church is. And so what I have for us this afternoon is an aspirational text, a text that, that we aspire to, that, that speaks both to what the church is and what the church should be and could be. And certainly there's a time to focus on the failures of the church. And, and all of us come into this room uh, most likely with church wounds, you know, different ways that that the church and people have hurt us. And we have stories of pastoral failures, scandals, and priestly scandals, and, and all of that. And there's a time to talk about the very real trauma people have experienced because of the church. But, but in our passage, Peter isn't focusing on that. In, instead, he's writing to a, a small group of tiny churches that would have been located in what is today modern-day Turkey. Um, Small churches mostly comprised of Christians of very eth- various ethnicities. They weren't uh, the so-called, you know, purebred Jew. They were Christians from all over the Roman Empire. And he sets out before them this grand ideal. And what I'm going to do is focus on verse 5, where Peter says that you, you little churches, probably no larger than we are today, you are being built into a spiritual house, a.k.a. a temple, and you are being ordained as a holy priesthood. And I think between those two things, um, I can give you at least two very good reasons to believe in the church. Okay, 2 Peter 2, 2 verse 4. Here he is using an important metaphor to describe Jesus. He says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, and here he's quoting Isaiah 28, See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion would have been in the, the Temple Mount area. Um, 
uh, in Jerusalem. I see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In ancient architecture, the cornerstone, we'll talk about it some more in a minute, was the most important um, piece of the construction. But he says, now to you who believe in the stone, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, and here he'll cite two more passages, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and Isaiah 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So the idea might be that there's this giant uh, stone and, and you're walking along in the dark and all of a sudden you didn't see it there and you stumbled over it. And, and that's the way that Peter described the Jewish leaders and many of the Jewish people in his day who, who failed to recognize Jesus as this precious stone. They stumble, he goes on, they stumble because they disobey the message of the gospel, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And I just got to think, the small little church, they have to, at this moment, be thinking to themselves, who are you talking about? Are you talking to us? Us? We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Us? You are God's special possession, he goes on, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray again. Oh, Holy Spirit, believing that you have shown us mercy, we invite you to build us into a healthy Christian community that is full of love and and the, the bonds of peace. So do that through the sermon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you've been listening to me preach for about two, two and a half months now, and you know that for the most part, I try to avoid long quotes and sermons, because I think long quotes are kind of difficult to follow, but I couldn't resist this one uh, that I'm going to put up on the screen or have John put up on the screen. It's written by a a gentleman who I think he was both a pastor and then he got a PhD, and he's done a lot of work overseas. He actually started an institute on cultural intelligence, and he wrote a book on cultural intelligence. It's quite good. I'm reading it, And, and basically, he's describing a peculiar feature of American culture that I wonder if you can recognize. And so here he goes, try to follow along. He says, I have been introduced to lots of Reverend Dr. So-and-sos in my travel abroad. And even though I know for some of the, I know some of the cultural reasons for these kinds of formal titles and introductions, it still unnerves me. It feels formal and hierarchical and inauthentic. Like if the tables are turned and someone refers to me as Reverend Dr. David, David Livermore, I'm quick to say, ah, just call me Dave. And I'd love to tell you that my reason for eliminating titles in front of my name comes entirely from my humility. But quite honestly, it's just the American way to feign equality in all of our relationships with a cloak of informality that applies to almost every interaction. He gives an example, training his kids. Uh, as Linda and I train our girls how to politely greet people, we tell them, you know, look them in the eye, shake their hand, and call them by name. We tell them to use the titles of Mr. and Mrs., but more often than not, the American ad- adults they greet say something like, you know, Mrs. Evans is my mother, just call me Susan, which like when I 
my parents grew up in Atlanta, and when we moved here back, you know, I was at, like age six, and then I'd go to my friend's house, and I'd say, like, Mr. Cooper, Mrs. Cooper. They didn't like that <laughs> at all. They didn't like that formality. See, but everyone knows American culture has a hierarchy of power relationships, whether it's a pastor to youth pastor or teacher to student or, you know, rich person to middle class person. But it is countercultural to be explicit about those kinds of things. Like we see that even in our jobs, when a superior needs to confront a subordinate, it's culturally appropriate to begin the conversation with small talk and an offer of a cup of coffee. You know, first names are preferred. And one of the greatest compliments you can give to someone in authority and your boss is to say, oh, well, she's just a regular person. Or listen to how often political candidates seek to demonstrate their common roots. Like, oh, he comes from blue-collar family and is a self-made success. Even though he's a brilliant and world-renowned leader, um, he makes you feel like he's one of you. And as a result, you know, most Americans resist formality. Now, does that hit the bullseye? <laughs> can, we, can you relate to that? that? This instinct that we have in America to just completely level the playing field so that we're all on, on the same footing. Got it? The ancient world is not that way. In fact, like most of the rest of the world is not that way. Um, you know, in Judaism, there was no higher authority than a priest. Like A priest was unmistakable in, in, uh, in, in that culture. They, I mean, it would be unmistakably known and have unmistakable authority. When a man was ordained to the priesthood, it would always be after this elaborate ceremony that was performed that included, first, the man was fully washed, you know, head to toe, a complete, you know, ceremonial bath. Then the man was clothed in new robes and, you know, a special, if you will, costume that denoted him for his, his office. Um, then he had his head and his face anointed with oil, this glistening oil. And then finally, a sacrificial was, uh, offering was made for his sins. And, and, and in that way, a priest was set apart from every other person into their own like social hierarchy. Which makes verse 5 of this passage so radical. Because here it is, Peter is saying that you Christians, you who are, are nobodies, you have been set apart to be a holy priesthood. And he's not saying it because of an American instinct to like level the playing field. Why would he say it? Unless it was true. Unless Peter believed something that would have been completely unthinkable for the world that he lived in, that this little ragtag bunch of people from all over the world that had really little to no social status or significance, that they, when they became followers of Jesus Christ, became priests and priestesses. And if you think about it, um, the ordination ceremony of a priest is kind of true for everybody who's a follower of Jesus. I mean, for example, like a priest was washed, you have been washed. If you've been through the waters of baptism, that was God's special washing. You have been given new robes. So often the, the Bible will talk about you're being clothed now in, in new garments. Not like obey the law, follow the law, follow the rules, but the garments of love, of compassion, of humility, of gentleness. You have been anointed like the priest, and not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And incidentally, it's interesting because in some Christian traditions, 
the, the, they use oil to, they anoint all kinds of people, uh, Christian people, as a symbol of the Holy Spirit's work in one's life. You've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, and, and then there was a sacred um, sacrifice for sin made on your behalf in order that you might be ordained to the most sacred and holy calling of their day. Now, how that rang um, in their ears is, I suspect, pretty different than how it rings in ours, because these metaphors of priests and temple, it's so removed from the world that we live in, right? I, I mean, I can't tell you the last time that I saw a temple other than maybe a Latter-day Saint temple driving by, and I can't tell you the last time that I, I saw a priest necessarily. Uh, and and even this idea that you are being ordained to this high and holy calling, that probably fit, falls a little bit on deaf ears because we've been taught since we were in kindergarten that every one of us is, is special, everybody is extraordinary, everybody is somebody. That's what we're taught from the earliest days. And yet that's not, it's not really true in the sense um, not everybody is, is special and given special... Um, uh, authority to perform special actions. There are only a few special people. There are only a few people who have access into the, the real places of this world. And consider for just a second some of the actions of a priest in the Old Testament. A, a priest would serve in God's house, the temple. He was given access to rooms in the temple that no one else could go into. Like if we went to D.C. today, we would find that we have very little access to the, the places of power, but a priest would in his service in God's house. Priests were also night watchmen. They, they stood on guard throughout the night, watching over the house. Priests burned incense throughout the day and the night. They kept the lamps burning inside the tabernacle. Um, and priests were, I like how this is put, something like a holy butler they served at the Lord's table, a.k.a. the altar. They would arrange the sacrifices on the table. And then from that altar, they would eat the food of that altar. And in some instances with the sacrifice, distribute it to the rest of the people. Well, those are the same kinds of uh, authority and activities that we as priests now have. I mean, we, we serve in the house of God because we together are the house of God. And our priestly activity in the house of God is to serve one another and to serve him. We um, are night watchmen. We, our ministry is to guard, to look out for one another, to look out for each other's best interests. Um, we, we offer incense. It just happens to be the incense of prayer that we burn that day and night for one another. Uh, we keep the lampstand burning. You know, Jesus, he said that make sure that you light your, you, you, you make your light such that it's not covered, but um, that it's to be seen by others. And, and we're told to walk in the light as Jesus is, is in the light. And then we, every Sunday, get to share a special meal from this table. And, you know, one of the things that might be a little different in our church than uh, maybe churches you've come from before is we actually use one of you to help distribute the meal. Um, why? Because, because you are, you are um, un uniquely uh, allowed to do so, I think, according to First Peter 2. So where am I going with all of this? Suffice to say, like, none of us show up on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons saying, all right, 
Let's go to our priestly service, our high and holy calling that we have to to come into the presence of God, into one another, into his house. Um, like None of us think that way. In fact, you could go for a very long time and be in church and never have even those categories um, ever expressed to you. I, I think what Peter is trying to say is Jesus, he sees something you know, far more significant in our discipleship than even we do. He sees in us something far more significant. Like you are ordained by by Jesus as servants in his house, as night watchmen and women, burning prayer as incense, light bearing, food distributing, priestly representatives of the Messiah to your neighbors. That is you. And for that to really hit, you, you should be You should be saying something along the lines of, who's he talking about, me? (laughs) Really, me? Yes, you. You know, last but not least, priests were the ones who represented God to the world. I mean, back in the ancient world, if you wanted to know something about a a given God, you, you didn't go to the internet. You went to the priests, and you asked the priests, like, well, what is it about this God that you follow? And so in the same way, God is calling you to be his representatives to the world so that when somebody sees you in action, they'd say, oh, well, that's what Jesus must be like. That's your priestly calling. And so I do believe that the church is to be a kingdom of priests. You um, are priests and priestesses. And he says, you come to, on Sunday, to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what Sunday is all about. Um, So that's the priesthood that you have been ordained to. Um, Secondly, let's move on to the spiritual house he talks about, the temple. And uh, it's important just to take a look at, this is Herod's temple, the temple that was around when Jesus was alive. It was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. But, I mean, it was... An incredible, uh, incredible structure. I mean, far more elaborate and beautiful than anything that I can think of that we have um, in the United States as far as temples are concerned. But uh, those temples were built with stones. And in ancient stone masonry, the most important activity of of the, the beginning of the project would be for the mason to go through the rock quarry and scrutinize all the potential rocks to serve as the cornerstone of the temple. Because the cornerstone was the most beautiful stone, the best stone that had to be chiseled to perfection. That stone that was selected would set, it would sit at the corner of the temple and it would, you know, give the trajectory of the walls for the rest of the temple. And so the dimensions of the cornerstone had to be perfect. Otherwise, you won't get a, a rectangle or a square. You'll get something that's, in, that's off-centered. Paul, you can, <laughs> you could elaborate on that, I'm sure. But the cornerstone was so important. And yet, in the language of the Bible, the cornerstone was rejected. This cornerstone, Psalm 118, God, the great architect, had walked through the quarry and he said, here is the stone that I have selected. And he goes on to testify to it by signs and miracles, by you know, healing people and raising people from the dead and, and feeding uh, thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and, and fish. Um, but the builders, a.k.a the religious leaders in that day would not listen to God on the the stone he had selected. They called the stone unfit. 
They called the stone rubbish, and Pontius Pilate agreed. So they took it, and they tossed it aside into the scrap pile as worthless. But on the third day, the stone was, ri- was raised to life. He, Peter purposely calls Jesus the living stone, you know, not the, the dead, inert stone in the ground, but the living cornerstone. And he is a living stone in the construction of a new temple. Um, and that's the idea, that, that God, not only is he creating a priesthood out of you, but he's creating a temple out of you. Now, the only surviving portion of this temple is what is called, you know, the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. It's a very sacred, you know, uh, location for Jews. They pilgrimage to it. Um, uh, you, that's just a very important part of Judaism. And it's also called the Wailing Wall because of the sadness of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But when Peter says to these Christians, you are bu- being built into a spiritual house, um, he, he has this kind of architecture in mind. And, and some of the stones you notice on the Wailing Wall, they are enormous. They're as much as 11 feet high pieces of limestone and 44 feet wide. And if you look closely, there's very, very little distance in between the stones. I mean, maybe enough to allow that moss to grow out of it, but the stones are all you know, tightly fit together. And so he calls you stones in the temple, stones in the spiritual house, that are interconnected with one another and are touching, ultimately, the chief cornerstone. You know, as stones, we touch each other and together we are touching Jesus. And the, the idea of the image is that we're supposed to. God wants us to live such an interconnected life that when, you know, one of those stones might begin to shake, the rest of the stones would feel it. Like we're supposed to live these lives of, of intentional connection which would be a whole lot easier if you are a small persecuted church in Turkey than it is if you are a spread out church in Phoenix in the 21st century, right? Because the way of life is just so different. I mean, much more communal, you know, walk to see your neighbors, uh, that, a small village with a lot of fierce opposition, you know, that has a way of just drawing you closer. Whereas, you know, here in Phoenix, life is not communal, and we're spread out. And, and, you know, most of us probably drive 15 to 20 or more minutes just to get here on a Sunday. And, and so I recognize that that interconnected ideal of stones in a temple is just that, an ideal. But it's an ideal that we should aspire for. I mean, it's an aspirational ideal. Uh, I don't have to tell you that there is an ache in American culture right now for community. Um, we, we want there to be community. The only problem is that community requires time and sacrifice. You know, uh, I said it earlier, I think, in the prayer, or maybe I didn't, but you know, a value is what you care about. A priority is a value you do something about. And we have a lot of people who say they value community, but community is not a priority. Because for to make it a priority, you have to say no to a lot of other things. You can't say yes to interconnected community without saying no and limiting your options. Um, and, in, you know, the reality of life today is that so many, so many of us are so busy with family and career, very good things, um, but we're so busy that we don't have 
communal ties. Those almost seem like a luxury. We say things like, it would be great if I had friendships. It would be great if I had church community. But, you know, dot, 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 it's treated as, as largely optional. And so I, I'm just so thankful that today we get to share a meal together. One of the metaphors that isn't captured in priest and temple is just a metaphor of family, of brothers and sisters. And you know, it was actually Craig and Joe who gave me the come up came up with the idea based on you know a church community that you've been part of before of taking fifth Sundays and just sharing sharing a meal because families eat together, don't they? And there's something to be said of just getting around the table, enjoying good food, good drink, laughing and 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 maybe not crying, but <laughs> laughing and crying and and just enjoying one's time together. And I hope that it'll become a regular part of our church community. Let me just finish out by pointing out one cool twist to the metaphor that Peter introduces. Did you catch it? Not only does he call Jesus a living stone, the living cornerstone, but he calls, of course, you living stone. Living stones in a living temple, which means that you are not this cold, hard, inert rock, but you are stone, if we could mix the metaphor, with a beating heart. And and I might be pushing the metaphor too far, but if Christians are living stones, then that means you are growing stones. Like if, if it's a living stone, it's growing and it's getting bigger and it's getting fuller. Um, and if it's a temple of living stones, that means like that the stones are themselves growing. It also means that if one stone starts to grow and, and the others are not growing, what's that going to do to the wall? It's going to create some pretty dangerous instability in the wall. You got one getting big and, and maybe you have others that are shrinking. And so there's this almost this implied um, idea that together we are to grow, together we're to grow in love and, and in grace. Um, Otherwise, we'll introduce empty space. Uh, but it goes, grows together. And in that way, the temple is enlarged. So do you believe in the Holy Catholic Church? What would, make, what would it take to make you um, believe more in the Holy Catholic Church? Seeing more grace and love that's shared in an actual community. Um, seeing lines of difference bridged between people who are not identical and, and have politics that are not identical and, and have cultural um, histories that are not identical. Seeing those lines of difference bridged through reconciling love, I think, I think that would make the Holy Catholic Church more believable. Um, and seeing more of Jesus uh, in the face of your brother and sister. I, that's what we're aspiring to. That's what I hope you'll be you know, continuing to pray for our church, that we would become those kinds of things. I really believe, everyone, that if we can become a healthy spiritual community, sort of the rest will take care of itself. Um, The money and the people and the sustainability and good ministry ideas, like all of that, maybe I'm Pollyanna, but I really feel like that'll take care of itself if we just become a healthy spiritual community of love. And so that's that's what we're giving our, our time and our attention and our prayers. And I, I hope you'll you know, join in doing the same. Amen.